Today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. HeritageRadioNetwork.com, and today I'm incredibly excited because we have with us the Iron Chef of the UK, Judy Chu. Um, welcome, Judy, and welcome to New York. Hello, I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. Well, just from those few words, I think we can tell that uh, Judy doesn't have that uh, British accent, and so we're going to jump right into it. How did you become the Iron Chef of the UK? Um, with an accent that sounds more New York. <laughs> well, I, I'm American. Um, I was born in New Jersey, in Summit, New Jersey, and born and bred um, in that great state. <laughs> and it when, is a great state. It is a great garden state. state. It is the garden state. It gets a lot of um, bad press due to certain television shows that will remain nameless. But, um, oh, I, I just think tomatoes. <laughs> okay, think. Toma- tomatoes, yeah, yes. Exactly. Right. exactly. And... Um, I uh, came to New York when I was 18 to go to um, college here, and after that, um, moved to San Francisco for a little bit, came back to New York, and then moved to England, and I've been in London for eight years, and was cooking there, and doing various bits and bobs of television, and Iron Chef UK came up, and I was one of the lucky four to get casted. Okay, well, we're going to go back there, but we kind of skipped over your whole life, okay, <laughs> you know, sorry. formative life. Okay. So, uh, you were growing up in New Jersey, mm-hmm. and when did your real uh, love of cooking come about? Um, well, growing up, I guess, in New Jersey, cooking wasn't really presented to me as a career choice, having a bit of a traditional Asian American <laughs> upbringing, tiger mother and all that stuff and um, I didn't really consider culinary as uh, culinary as a career until much later and I, I would say I went on to the traditional route I just studied my butt off and went to an Ivy League school and did all well, that. Tell me, what did you study? And what um, school did you go to? I, I studied engineering at Columbia here in New York and uh, did my four years of hard work there, and then um, just what, being in New York. Why engineering? What, what appealed to you about engineering? Um, both of my parents have science backgrounds. My mom was a chemist, and my dad's a physician, and so it was really the only thing I knew growing up, and I was um, living up to my stereotype, <laughs> really good in math and science. My background I, is Korean-American. I mean, Korean- I know that we <laughs> yeah. in Seoul. That's I, right. I was fortunate enough to meet Judy in Seoul, but we actually had met before that. Yes. But we'll get into that <laughs> okay. later. Yeah, and um, so I was being a good Korean-American daughter and just um, excelling in math and science and all of that. So I played the piano and everything and, um, and then made my way into engineering school at Columbia. And um, just Were you cooking at this time? I wasn't really cooking. I mean, I always helped my mom cook when we were young. but um, Korean food? Korean or? food mostly. And because we lived in a very... Um, 
not diverse community in New Jersey. She really had to make everything from scratch. There wasn't um, a lot of Asian grocery stores around or anything. Are you first generation? Were your parents actually from Korea? My parents are from Korea, so so they immigrated. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And they really lived the American dream, I'd have to say. And, um, you know, my mom was always making something, um, whether it was bubbling, boiling silken tofu stews or dumplings or um, uh, seaweed or something like that. There was always something going on just because they were so far from home, they just really craved that taste of home, I guess. And Uh, and you were growing up with a dual palate because I'm sure at school and with your friends you were eating the traditional gourmet American menu. (laughs) I was, I was, yeah. And Korean food has such a different taste profile. Did Did you like both cuisines equally? Oh, yeah, I, I, I did like, and I do like both cuisines equally, even to, to this day, I have cravings just as much for uh, a good bibimbap as I do for pizza or, or a great New York bagel. Um, and I was fortunate in that sense to kind of grow up biculturally and have that type of palate develop, I guess, from an early age and, you know, could eat pizza versus spaghetti versus bibimbap versus um, kimchi and and not even think twice about it and our Thanksgiving was often a gastronomical nightmare in terms of what was on the table a mix of everything but it was fun I think that's the real American Thanksgiving yeah well that must have been something did you what did you take to school did you uh, did you take Korean food for lunch? Did you pack a lunch to go to school? Um, you know, a lot of times I would just eat in the cafeteria, but sometimes my mom would pack us sandwiches. It was usually a, a combination of different things. Like sometimes she would make us little um, Korean sushi rolls called kimbap, but usually it was probably just the easiest thing to eat was a sandwich. Oh, that's good, <laughs> yeah. because I remember Rocco Despirito telling me he was so embarrassed because his mother would make him paninis. Uh, and, and he was so embarrassed because no one had a panini, and he would trade them for peanut butter sandwiches. Oh, that's so funny. So we, yeah. we don't know what great stuff we have. And, yeah, you know, it's as, true. As we had it. So, so you grew up in Summit, and then you went to Columbia University. Mm-hmm. And So when did the professional you know, cooking bug bite you? Um, that would probably come... Well, my first introduction, I guess, to cuisine I would have to say was just at Columbia and just living in New York um, just because you have so many different ethnic enclaves in New York City and um, the Columbia student body is very diverse and so we would go out on little eating trips and eat in little Brazil one day or go out to Coney Island and have Russian food or go to Koreatown or go to Chinatown or Curry Row Brick Lane and all that stuff and so it was it was a lot of fun and um, that probably opened up my palate, I would have to say, and I didn't um, realize how many different types of flavors and cuisines there were out there. I mean, I knew, but I never really tried them. And then um, when I started working uh, in what and when I started working in finance on Wall Street, and this is when money grew on trees, and we had expense account dining, um, that really opened up uh, my world in terms of, well, restaurants can be these transporting, amazing experiences. And, um, you know, the world of wine opened up to me. And um, it wasn't until later, though, when I was kind of getting bored and sick of selling fixed income (laughs) derivative products and I was like you know what Um, I don't really have a passion for this I'm learning a lot I'm doing okay at it but I really I think it's time for me to chase 
my my true love and not a paycheck anymore. Wait, wait. So you graduated in engineering from Columbia, and mm-hmm. then what? Did you go straight to Wall Street? I went straight to Wall Street. I was on one of these two-year analyst programs that... For which firm? For Morgan Stanley. And, uh, you know, working around the clock. And it was a lot of fun. I was working on on the trading floor and uh, had a good time. So it's during that intense period Mm -hmm. when you started going to the great restaurants and drinking the great wine. Exactly. (laughs) I think I like this better because, you know... Yeah, I mean, it's just... um, It just really kind of expanded my, my my world and um I was I started realizing well this is something that you can really go into as a career and you can choose to be in food and beverage and and it's this fantastic place and it's creative and it's a business and it's challenging and um I just I, I didn't really know um anything about it just because I'd never been exposed to it as as a child growing up really right and then the first time we met is because you came to the French culinary exactly Institute yeah and, uh, and you did the course, and when you graduated, what were you, what were you, what was your first job? Um, I graduated two thousand four, and my first job was at Sever Magazine. Actually, when Coleman Andrews was the editor in chief. Oh, so you didn't want to go into the restaurant? I didn't. No, okay. I didn't. Um, I was thinking more food media, actually. And so you got a job. You didn't have a writing background at that stage. No, you were an engineer off of Wall Street. Yes. You did the culinary program. And you landed a job at Severo? Yeah, yeah. Um, that was, I was great. How did you do that? I was working in the test kitchen, actually. So, oh. um, for, so I was, uh, and then I ended up going into editorial after that. And um, but they were taking interns at the time, and I ended up um, freelancing with, so with them the later. Got you the internship. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And um, I loved it. I loved it, and used a lot of my engineering and science background there because I was testing and developing recipes. It really is using um, the scientific method. You have variables and controls, and you make the same thing over and over again <laughs> until it's exactly right. And um, Science is is part of cooking inherently, and I really leaned on my science background to to excel in that form a lot. And then, um, well, let's explore that a mm-hmm. little because a lot of people want to uh, think their dream job is working in a test kitchen. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, how, how does a test kitchen operate? Um, well, when I was there, Melissa Hamilton and Vivian Zhao were were in charge, and um, they've they've of course gone off to do brilliant and and things afterwards but um it was really interesting i mean it was it was i was very lucky to work in such a great team and such passionate people and basically they would just send their editors to the far reaches of the earth and um somebody would come back with a recipe that was written by a hundred-year-old grandmother on a napkin in italian (laughs) or something like that you know um for some cookie that she had been making for 70 years and we'd have to take that recipe and translate it for the American kitchen and make it you know based on what we had using ingredients that we had and then basically take it to the editor who had the real thing when they were traveling wherever and based on photographs and their descriptions and their memories try to recreate that particular cookie or that casserole or that chicken or whatever dish it was and it is extremely challenging I mean sometimes you made the same dish over 30 40 times it was it's crazy and pastry was definitely the most challenging Why? Um, because once you make it you stick in the oven you can't fix it whereas 
everything on the most things on the savory side you can always doctor and fix if it's not thick enough you can make it a little bit thicker you reduce it down if it needs more salt you can just add it you know if the texture's not right you can even take salt out if you need to sometimes with potatoes (laughs) um and it's you know once you throw a batch of cookies in the oven if they don't if the texture's not right you got to make it again same with the cake and a lot of times you really have to understand the elements going into it so you have to look at protein content of the flour what type of flour are you using what type of fat are you using there's a big difference between butter oil and and lard and how they behave and how they affect the the crumb or the texture of the cake and the rise and what type of uh, leavener are you using are you using a fresh yeast or a chemical leavener is it baking soda versus baking powder what is the catalyst <laughs> you know like what's going to react to it is it acidic or basic and um it's can you tell when you're reading a magazine or a cookbook whether a recipe has been tested oh completely (laughs) completely so what what are the keys to look for um you can just tell by the amounts usually like you can just kind of see if there's too much liquid uh, or or too much flour too much dry stuff or or whatever i mean basic ratios do exist out there and um and particularly once you start making something you can this is not right you know, it doesn't have the right feel. It doesn't have the right look. So what look. percentage of cookbooks do you think don't test their recipes? Oh, a large part. I think More I, than the majority? Um, I think so, I would have to say. I mean, especially these, these compilations um, that have become so popular with the rise of the celebrity chef. And I think a lot of celebrity chefs will just send in a recipe that they have that works in the regular commercial restaurant restaurant, no seriously in a restaurant (laughs) atmosphere exactly and then they send it to some editor who then just tries to cut it down and then different you know obviously you can't throw things into a robocoop or a thermomix or any of these types of commercial equipment or desiccator or whatever and so they're taking these recipes and just cutting them down academically which doesn't necessarily always work Mm -hmm. and um, trying to translate a a professional recipe into a domestic recipe isn't that easy. Does it get redundant being in a test kitchen? Is it boring or is it exciting? I found it really exciting actually um, mainly because of the variety. I mean there is no... um, same thing every single day. One day you're working on a story from Poland. The next day you're working on a story from China. The next day you're learning about cuisine and traditions in Lebanon. I mean, so you're you're really expanding your knowledge and you're exploring cultures and the world through food. And I found it absolutely fascinating when so I was there. So for those of you out there who think your dream job is being in a test kitchen, we haven't burst your bubble. <laughs> okay, so let's get back to your story. Yeah. So now you're at Sever, mm-hmm. and what happens after that? Um, well, while I was working at Sever, I was also working for Slow Food USA, and I is this from Patrick Martin's? Is yeah, Patrick Martin's because Patrick's the head of our Heritage Radio <laughs> oh, Network. And Patrick, and he's the one who founded the network. And Patrick a, owes me a turkey. <laughs> you owe me a turkey, okay. <laughs> Patrick. I hope you're listening. You owe me a Heritage turkey. You probably remember that too. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So tell us all about Slow Food when Patrick Martin's was there. So um, I started when they were actually in one of the offices here mm-hmm. at the French Culinary Institute. I know it always. Comes comes back to the French culinary, yeah. now known as the International Culinary <laughs> exactly. Center. This isn't a commercial, but it's somehow I, everybody I know, you know, is connected with this yeah. place. But Pat, yes, we did have the, when they first came to the U.S., 
um, Alice Waters, who's a dean here, yes. and she said, can you find them a closet? And Patrick will tell you, I found them a closet. It was. <laughs> more than, but it, there was great synergy there. It was so great. The, the synergy worked on you. So yeah. What, so what did yeah. you do? Um, so... I basically um, founded and started Slow Food in Schools' first Truly Inner City um, project in Harlem, here in New York City, and we called it Harvest Time in Harlem, and it was an after-school program for, for the third and fourth graders there, and we taught them all about making healthy food choices, we taught them about um, the conviviality and the practice and eating of, of the traditions of the table. Um, we would theme the classes over certain ingredients. So one day it would be tomatoes or beans and, or, um, you know, various different types of, of um, what else do we do? I can't even remember, <laughs> um, of, of legumes or whatever. So we would showcase biodiversity. So was this a program that they wanted to make portable to other schools as uh, well? Well, Alice Waters was already doing it with the Edible Schoolyard uh-huh. in, in Berkeley. And there were small projects popping up all over the country. And um, I was actually a tutor... Um, at the children's storefront school in Harlem, and I was tutoring math there to, to say, students. How did you yeah, and um, these these kids are are really underprivileged. Um, a statistic was given to me once that the average kindergartner um, nationwide has about three thousand words in their vocabulary, and these children have maybe three hundred, and they're dealing with abuse, neglect. Um, drugs, poverty, I mean, on, on a daily basis. Um, so how do they adapt to the program? What do they think? Well, um, you know, a lot of the kids loved it, honestly. I mean, there were, a lot of them are labeled as food insecure, so there are only two meals they would eat a day were the two meals they were given at school, and they were kind of left to their own devices after school. And so um, the children, in a lot of ways, this was just another meal for them. Mm-hmm. And um, But they honestly loved it. It was it turned into something that was extremely fun. We started doing class trips. We took them up to stone barns and oh, showed them is- the farms. And, and by these are kids who wouldn't touch anything green or any vegetables like we, we held up corn on the cob once and nobody could identify it because they've never seen anything fresh they've only seen corn frozen or in a can or in a bag or whatever and because of that nobody wants to touch it. it's like ew gross i don't want to i don't want to eat it and um it, it really became a, a a lesson of just trying to expand their palates and we had all these rules like three bites is a is a taste and and um but we took them to whole foods and columbus circle and everywhere and and by the end of the program and we i think we grew some budding chefs at the end it would be nice to go back and see yeah. you know how how it affected them later on okay well, we're going to have to take a break here but we're going to come back and we're talking with Judy Chu who is iron chef UK and the consulting chef to the Playboy Club in London. We'll be back. This is Dorothy Hamilton and Chef Story on Heritage Radio Network.org.
White Oak Pastures is the only farm in the United States that has its own USDA-inspected red meat abattoir or slaughterhouse and its own USDA-inspected poultry abattoir or slaughterhouse. We partner with Whole Foods to deliver our high-quality meat and poultry from Miami, Florida, all the way to Princeton, New Jersey. One family, one farm, five generations, 145 years. A full circle return to sustainable land stewardship and humane animal stockmanship. For more information, please visit our website, whiteoakpastures.com. is Judy Chu, the Iron Chef UK and the consulting chef for the Playboy Club in London. Uh, Judy, we're just talking about your uh, days in New York and mm-hmm. slow food, but uh, so when did you jump the pond, as they say, and get to London? Um, I jumped the pond about eight years ago, and um, that's when I started working in kitchens, actually. I was eating at Gordon Ramsay Restaurant, and Gordon... You're Ram- still working for Morgan Stanley? <laughs> I was not. <laughs> You're no, on no. expense account? <laughs> I was not. I was not. Um, and, um, you know, Gordon has one of the three three Michelin stars that are out, out in, in the U.K., and um, was eating there and he happened to be there himself and saying hello to all the guests and um, told him I was a chef and he said when are you going to start working for me and really uh, yeah <laughs> and I uh, introduced me to his head chef in the kitchen and head chef wanted to come in to do a stage which I did and um, ended up working there for about two and a half years what was that like? I mean, if you see Hell's <laughs> Kitchen, it's sort of, if I had to um, do an apprenticeship, I might not choose to do it under Mr. Ramsey. Yeah, I mean, he's not in the kitchens that much, obviously, anymore. I mean, he, he lives in the States, I believe, now, and he's, he's doing a, a lot of... media. Yeah, I mean, he's, he, he has um, a, lot of, a lot of chefs working for him, so he wasn't really a, a presence in, in his kitchen. So what is a Gordon Ramsay kitchen like? Does it work like... Clockworks. Oh and yeah. Goes around and, and kind of tells people how to do it. Yeah, I mean it's um, a three Michelin star kitchen, so everything has to be absolutely perfect, and it's not. They will throw it out, and you will be shamed into making it again and again and again until it's right. Do they yell a lot? Um, I think most kitchens there's yelling. Yeah, <laughs> definitely, especially when there's that kind of pressure. R- really? Yes. Because you know, I, I've been in some kitchens and you know it really takes on the personality of the chef and although no kitchen is without stress Mm -hmm. there are some quieter kitchens than others it's true um, and and, but there is a lot of yelling in some instances Mm -hmm. you know I, i often wondered watching the program of whether people are treated quite so roughly is that there doesn't seem to be I you know we're into nurturing and mm-hmm. teaching yeah yeah and so a teaching moment isn't yelling at somebody yeah. throwing the plate yeah. on the floor did yeah. you ever see that in, in a Gordon Ramsay kitchen where they throw the food on the floor and humiliate somebody um I mean there was it was always within reason I have to say um it was never excessive or um, if people screwed up, you know, you always you always knew when you screwed up. I mean, it wasn't. Um, but I mean, I've worked a number of different kitchens around and, and it's with various varying levels of intensity. And um, it's uh, now I, I have yeah. to ask you, you don't have to name the chef. Uh-huh. You just 
you have shared with me a horrendous story that I mm-hmm. think made the press in England uh, <laughs> about a chef with a notorious temper. Can mm-hmm. you, I think, share how bad it can get. Oh, okay. <laughs> you can tell that story. Um, well, it's, yeah, it, it's, there's a certain chef that, that I know that actually, he's um, notorious for having branded one of his Calmy chefs. and now, he branded, not... Not in the no. marketing no. sense of the word, but yeah. say what he, he dipped a pair of tongs, I believe, or some other metal instrument in a deep fat fryer and then seared one of his junior staff <laughs> because he had screwed something up. So, now, yeah. You know, I, I've never heard stuff like that from an American kitchen. Maybe I'm naive. Um, is this a, think, a British, uh, no, you know, I between the yelling and the branding? I think it's a European thing, because I know French kitchens are extremely rough as well. Um, I have a number of friends who've worked their way through um, France and Spain even, and it's, uh, it seems to be almost like a hazing process, I think, and, um, and women get hazed a lot. Uh, what is it, is it, do you think women in, in English or Europe, let's not talk about Europe, let's talk about England, which is what mm-hmm. you know firsthand. Is it a different atmosphere in the kitchen between the two countries? Um, I would have to say that, I mean, I think that more things are a bit, I think things are a bit more liberal in, in Europe in general because we don't have the suing country as, or culture as, as they do in America. So, you know, you're not, I guess, as scared to behave badly because you're not going to necessarily get sued because they don't have that type of mentality in Europe. Yeah. So they don't. They do behave badly. Um, I would they can think get so. Away with yeah, it. yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, and, uh, how many women are in the kitchen in England? Is what's the proportion of men to women? Um, it depends. I mean, when I was um, at Gordon Ramsay restaurant, I was probably one of two or three women out of twenty-five people. Uh, my kitchen. I'm the only woman. Um, it's it's hard. Your it's, kitchen now? Now. At the Playboy yes. Club? Oh, yeah. we're going to get to the Playboy <laughs> yeah, yeah. Club. We can't wait for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Boy, that's a very interesting statement. Yeah. But uh, let's get back to uh, your days at Gordon Ramsay. Mm-hmm. So, uh, three-star restaurant. What, what did you do, actually? Everything and anything. I did everything from... I mean, particularly in the beginning, I was at the bottom of the rung. You know, I was juicing lemons. I was picking herbs. I was... I was, um, you know, doing whatever they needed me to do. It didn't really matter. And um, how long did it take you to progress to more complicated um, stations? It took a few months. I think that it really is. It operates in terms of meritocracy. Like when they see that you can do the work and you're all right at it, they will just keep giving you more stuff. And basically, it's a sink or swim environment. And the more you can take on, the more you will be given because it's generally somewhat overstaffed and harried. And as much as you can get done, the better. <laughs> How many hours a day did you work? Um, I didn't work that that many, um, just because I was coming and going as as a kind of a, a volunteer at first, you know, so I was an intern and then, um, so they couldn't abuse me <laughs> really because I wasn't really getting paid. But then after a while I started getting paid by, by the hour. But, um, I was a little bit of a, of a special sit situation, but your, your day really dependent on how fast you can get your work done. But, um, generally you came in in the morning, um, because it was lunch service and then you finished whenever the last diner left. Mm. So th- then, uh, when did you make the transition to media and Island Chef? 
Um, I, I met a producer just randomly when I was in in London, just through some mutual chef friends, and um, kind of gone along with her. And she was looking for new talent for a show called Market Kitchen that she was producing. And I became a regular guest on that show. And um, after a while, this casting came up for Iron Chef UK, and a lot of the producers that were on Market Kitchen. I mean, everybody freelances and moves around in, in these industries, and so people generally tend to know each other. And um, everybody went for the casting. It was one, just one of these big things, and obviously people know the brand and the franchise and, and the power of the brand. And I didn't really think I had much of a chance to get casted, actually. And, um, you know, the stars were aligned, and I was one of the four that was picked to launch wow. the show. Yeah. Congratulations. It was fun. Really? Yeah. So, how is the Iron Chef UK exactly the same as the American counterpart, or is it different? Uh, the format's slightly different, but the overall feel and the the the, the look of the show is the same. Um, the guys who produce Triage, uh, who produce Iron Chef America, came out and were involved in the production for Iron Chef UK as well. And so it obviously has the same type of um, cheesy sound effects and, and the Japanese host and, and all of the kind of over-the-top top dramatic um i don't even know like cultish type of, right. <laughs> of so segues you have judy chu who's a korean american actor who's very interesting yeah uh, french train mm-hmm. and who are the other iron chefs um tom akins who is two-star michelin chef who specializes in british cuisine sanjay davetti who um, earned a michelin star as well who specializes in indian cuisine and martin blunos who um is the two-star michelin chef as well who specializes in eastern european and as well as french cuisine oh okay so everybody has quite a pedigree yes really. <laughs> yeah. and um and so you come up against chefs in the UK yep. who are uh, professional chefs. Professional no, they're all they're all professional chefs. Um, have their own restaurants or, or whatever. How, how stressful is it? doing those oh Iron Chef is probably one of the most stressful things I've ever done in my life tell us what really happens behind the scenes it's that that one hour goes by in five minutes and I I just did a battle here in New York uh, for Iron Chef America and it's just as stressful (laughs) I mean it so you really don't know what the secret ingredient is well they tell you it's um, a possibility of one of three ingredients and so you can kind of come up with, with a menu of, of what you're going to do, but you don't know until you're actually there. Oh, okay. So yeah. how long in advance do you know what the ingredients might be? Three weeks, two, two, three weeks, depending. Yeah, depending on how far in advance they book you. So do you practice before? Oh, yeah, you practice, you practice and practice and try to get the timing right. I mean, it's it's a very different way to cook. I mean, it's with those type of constraints, limitations, you know, um, what can you get done in an hour? And to get five dishes done in one hour, you really have to think about what can you do and how fast can I get this done and is this possible? And do you have team uh, workers yeah. with you? How yeah. did you pick your team? Um, I've, I've, I, uh, I have my head chef and my head pastry chef. Uh, from, he's the Playboy from the Club. Playboy Club, yeah. yeah. And uh, there are my sous chefs. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, uh, and they're sweating <laughs> the entire time. <laughs> sweating, sweating, sweating. Yeah. It's, uh, do you have a particular style that always manifests itself on the show? Um, I think that 
I, I generally pull a lot of Asian ingredients in, into my, my, my cooking, and obviously Korea has a huge influence on my cuisine. Um, but I, I would say, I mean, I generally pull from all over. I'm a French-trained Korean-American Londoner. So. <laughs> well, let's talk fusion here. <laughs> exactly, which, which actually ended up being in my advantage because um, particularly when I was on Iron Chef UK because the challengers were always saying they didn't know what I was going to cook. I can make something you know, extremely American or do something that was slightly Japanese or something that was Korean or something that was French. And, and whereas the other guys really had their 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 cuisine and you knew what they were going to do with it. So the Indian chef always had those yes. spice that, that Indian flavor. Flavor profile. Yeah, exactly. Okay, well, we're going to take another little break here. I'm speaking with Judy Chu of the Iron Chef UK and the consulting chef for the Playboy Club in London. And when we come back, we're going to talk to her about that. Like what you hear so far? Support the network and become a member. Membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably-minded businesses that support us. To become a member, visit heritageradionetwork.org today. Well, welcome back. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton, and you're listening to Chef's Story. And today, I'm interviewing Judy Ju. And she is the Iron Chef UK and the consulting chef for the Playboy Club in London. Judy, what is it like? What, what Tell us about the Playboy Club in London. What does it look like? How big is it? And there's a restaurant there? Yeah. Okay, um, tell us all about it. Obviously, it's um, the most fun place to work. <laughs> Is it? Yeah. Gloria Steinem might not agree. (laughs) It's it's very fun. And um, I have to pinch myself sometimes just because I never thought in a million years that I would be working for Playboy. (laughs) And um, it's it's been a wild ride. And it's been a lot of fun just because... um, if, if you know, the, the club was quite iconic in the 1960s and 70s, and so this was a relaunch of that, that, of that club, and so there's a lot of nostalgia, and it's a kickback to that whole era. Um, and there's a casino, there's a nightclub, there is a very groovy cocktail lounge, there is a sports bar, there is a fine dining restaurant, there's a private dining room, there are private gaming rooms, there's a cigar lounge, and there's even a little spa. <laughs> There's a lot Whoa, going on. A lot going on. A lot going right. on. Yeah. So the spa is where you get to take your clothes off. Right? Yeah, basically, <laughs> you can get a. It massa- is the Playboy. Club. Yeah, you can get a massage. Yeah. Whoa. yeah. Okay, we're not going. There. We're going back to the kitchen. Okay. So tell us, what's the kitchen like there, and how big is the restaurant? And okay. Who eats there? And- yeah. Um, well, it is. Uh, a killer to run, I have to say, because it's 24 hours, seven days a week. 24 hours? Yes. You never close a casino. Never, never, never close a casino. And yes. so um, I have a brigade of 25 guys. And, um, you know, obviously during off hours, we have a skeleton staff. But um, because of the nature of the business, I have to have a number of different menus on. And um, even kind of funny menus. I've never worked for a casino before. And, um, 
I have this strange casino gaming sandwich menu where um, players just want sustenance and do they want to be able to eat sandwiches at the tables that don't make their fingers dirty, that don't make any crumbs or saucy messes or anything like that. And so I, I have to provide that. What is that, a cheese sandwich yeah, on white bread? It's like, it's like tea sandwiches. Yeah. <laughs> so I have this whole assortment of, of little different tea sandwiches that people can eat at, at the gaming tables and... Um, at first, I was like, "Dude, I love sandwiches. I'm an American, you know. I'm, I'm thinking sloppy joes or you know things that with sauce and things that are big, like chicken parm sandwiches, meatball or sandwiches, club or, sandwich. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I, I, I do have a club sandwich, but I wasn't thinking little neat, dainty triangles that you can eat while holding cards with and one you're hand. Probably not even concentrating on the sandwich. <laughs> no, stuffing it in yeah, your face, yeah. yeah. So, oh, so and and I would imagine a casino has lots of different nationalities that. Game Tons. There. So do you have to accommodate their parents? Yeah, yeah. So it's more about the customer's wants oh. than your personality coming through. Um, well, it, of course, I do have my, my the, the fine dining restaurant, which is my menu, um, my personality, uh, all of that. But when we have a certain high-class gamer that comes in and is dropping a ridiculous amount of money on the tables and he says he wants this, he will get that. So it is an element of whatever is your wish is our command. So, like, how much money do these people drop at a table? Oh, hundreds of thousands. Hundreds of thousands. It's a very high-end casino. So yeah. if they said, I want... Do you keep foie gras and caviar? Oh, yeah. And yeah. Mm-hmm. And do, would you just send that out? Just if they it? want it, yeah. Definitely. They have to ask for it? Um, yeah, they have to be gambling, I think. I mean, everybody has a profile and a gaming history and all that stuff. And so we definitely know all of our customers. And we know what they like. And we know when they're coming in. And... And we know what they don't like and how they want their shrimp cooked or their steak cooked or whatever. And so, um, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. So what level do you have to uh, demand from your chefs, you know, working for, for you? I mean, yeah. you don't want them to say the steak isn't cooked properly. Or yeah. You have to know how they like their shrimp. I mm-hmm. mean, that's pretty specific. Oh, yeah, yeah. And and they will send things back if, if they don't like them. And um, it's it actually makes it much more interesting for my chefs, I think, because they're always being asked to cook something different. And we get a lot of VIP clients and, and people from all around the world. And so, you know, and a lot of our, our acts, because we have a nightclub, like when Snoop Dogg came in, they just wanted Southern American food. And so we did this whole menu of, you know, spaghetti and meatballs, um, buttermilk fried chicken, um, real American pies, um, biscuits and my guys had never made any of this stuff really before they're like biscuits I'm like it's not a cookie it's, yeah, it's, it's right. a biscuit you know? right, yeah. <laughs> and American pies are like pie I'm like no it's not like your pie <laughs> it's, it's an American pie right. and things you know like 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 pecan pies and um, mm-hmm. sweet sweet potato pies and key lime pies now and you said something before that you have 25 guys mm-hmm. in the kitchen. you have no women working no there. women unfortunately and Playboy club. now why is this there are lots of women working in other parts the club. Yes. <laughs> do, they have, do they have male bunnies? No, but we have had some men apply for the male bunny roles, which we don't have at this current moment available. <laughs> well, I'm not going to go there. Let the British worry about you know, discrimination but, uh, suits. But, but did any women apply to work um, at the Yeah, I've, I've had some, some women come, come through and left for various reasons or whatever, but I think... Um, Number one, it's hard to find find women in kitchens in general, and number two, in England, in in, in most kitchens, I mean, there are a lot not. of the pastry kitchens. Have yeah, it's true. Yeah, um, yeah I, you definitely see more women in pastry, but um, 
I think the Playboy name is also a bit hard for women to kind of gravitate towards <laughs> to want to work there. Did it bother um, you? It didn't, actually. Um, I, I My first question was, is it a strip club? And I was assured it wasn't. <laughs> and, um, but I was just kind of looking, and I thought about it long and hard. And um, it's, it's actually a pretty amazing brand, if you think about is it. Is it? Tell us. I mean, it is one of those super brands of the world. Mm -hmm. It's that little bunny head logo is recognized around the world. It doesn't matter if you are in Thailand or in Africa or Europe or, you know, Latin America. Everybody knows who that little bunny head is. Mm -hmm. And it's one of these brands. It's like Nike or or Disney or Coca-Cola. It's just ecumenical. And uh, to be part of a global brand like that is is really special. And Mm -hmm. for somebody like Hugh Hefner to be able to build that empire in one generation in his lifetime is is really a feat. Mm Mm-hmm. It is, it's true. I mean, it is an iconic yeah. brand. Yeah. So, so you're doing all that now. Um, what do you? What, what's your philosophy? You know, what, what's your essence of, in being a chef? Because you have very different uh, roles, <laughs> and you know, yeah. it isn't the standard of being in a in a kitchen running a brigade. I mean, you, you've, you're quasi media. Um, yeah, you know, very creative. What? Where's all this going? Where do you see? Where do you see? Yourself? Gosh, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. Um, I've been really lucky, I have to say, and to some extent, you you do make your own luck. But um, I think that I've just been I've been graced and blessed to have had certain opportunities, and who knows what happens tomorrow. So or... you're an organic. I chef. am. You I mean, I, I, I never naturally. planned for any of this to happen. I mean, if you would have asked me ten years ago, I would have. I'd be living in London and working for Playboy and doing Iron Chef. I would never have thought it. Never, never, never. Mm-hmm. And um... so, what what words of wisdom do you have for aspiring chefs out there? Um, I think that being a chef and being a good chef isn't just about cooking anymore. Um, I think that obviously you have to be a good cook and you have to know your fundamentals and everything, but you really have to pay attention to everything else around it as well. And that is knowing how to run a good business and how to run a restaurant and knowing about front of house and being a manager and also having good communication skills and good writing skills. And I think that's something that's helped me tremendously um, personally. Um, And that's why I've been able to kind of pursue media in a relatively quickly way is because I've I'm somewhat articulate, I hope. And um and the fact that I've been able to to have also the, these other roles like being a restaurant c- critic for Time Out and do small writing pieces and, and do that is because um I, I I've been able to kind of leverage off of what little you know bachelor's undergraduate education I have to kind so, of so has the the role of a chef really changed I mean in Andre Soltner's time and you know 50 years ago just to be a good chef doing your food in your kitchen was all it meant mm-hmm. but you're saying now you have to be a business person you have to be a writer you have to Definitely. brand yourself not it's the way that <laughs> chef did with the times but yeah. you you have to brand yourself is that really absolutely necessary for everybody well I think it's just because it's so competitive now 
It really is. I mean, just look at all the different restaurants that open up on your block in New York City every single year. Mm-hmm. I think there's an 85% chance of all restaurants closing in the first three, four years of opening. And that really... Now, wait, wait, wait. Let me... Yeah. We, we actually are blessed. We have a restaurant management course here where mm-hmm. we get the top professors from Cornell. And mm-hmm. they do a lot of studies. Yeah. On, on uh, restaurant closures. Mm-hmm. And restaurants don't really close any more frequently than other small businesses. Okay. So, you know, it is a large percent. I think it's in five years, 95% five years, of small 90. businesses wow. close. And I think it's because they don't have enough cash to run them. They're undercapitalized. I mm-hmm. think that that was the, the, the most significant factor. Not because they weren't popular, not mm-hmm. because they weren't well run, but very often people start with too little cash. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I'm, I'm sort of defending yeah. you know, our little restaurant yeah. budding industry. I, mm-hmm. I, still, I don't want to put people off from yeah. going into it. Yeah, no, like that's true. Were, you, you do need a lot of courage to open you a do. business. You so do. it's the same kind. Yeah. But it is it is hard. The competition now is fierce. Yes. I think the competition is so much more fierce now mm-hmm. than, than, than it is um, th- than it was 10 years ago and that's because of the media and the power of social media as well and mm-hmm. you have to have a strong PR and marketing team behind you mm-hmm. as a small business to get attention and particularly if you don't have a celebrity chef's name behind you or some Are other there type some of chefs that you admire that you think have done that particularly well. Um, definitely. I mean, I think that, um, that, uh, chefs in the UK, like, like Jamie Oliver, I mean, he's just a media, a media machine Mm -hmm. and I like his message. I like the fact that he's trying to change things in food, Mm -hmm. change schools, change the way we eat, change the way people think about food. I Mm -hmm. think that he's, he's, um, used his fame in in a relatively, and. very responsible and and is trying to make the world a better place to <laughs> no it's I mean, true yeah it's it's true and um you can't deny the power of media i mean i did this little segment for the show the best thing i ever ate and for this little cafe called the love and oven in frenchtown about this delicious chocolate caramel sea salt tart and they couldn't deal with the demand i mean their phone would not stop ringing and that's from a little three minute five minute segment that pops up every now and then on Food Network. So it's just, you, you know, you can't deny that power that, that exists now. And um, and that's what's going to get people through the door and, mm. and the volume that you need in order to create the cash flow too, in order mm. to create a sustainable business. Mm. And But you also have to um, control your costs. And a lot of um, people don't realize that a restaurant really is about making money too. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're running a business, and I think that you really have to look at you know your profit and loss and your gross, you know, and, and your um, and your costs and where you're sourcing and everything, and be very careful about that and your wastage. And a lot of um, chefs just know how to cook, and I think that that's not enough if you're going to be that's a true. successful yeah, business that's person. True. You know, I've yeah, tra- we. We train chefs at the International Culinary Center, and now we were talking before the mm-hmm. show that we have concentrations. It's yeah. no longer just culinary. Yeah. There are some people with the farm-to-table concentration, some with wine, some with technology, mm-hmm. but we also have that business course that all of them yeah. can take simultaneously. So, no, it is, it's taking a lot of different skill sets yeah. now to be successful anything. That's true. And the amazing thing is that I think people now have to brand themselves. Yeah. It's no longer you can just get a job and be good at it. You, mm-hmm. you have to be very careful about 
who you are and where you've worked and what you've done. Mm-hmm. And you've done it brilliantly, I have <laughs> I to don't know. say. <laughs> well, I've associated myself with some pretty successful brands, I'd have to say, <laughs> and the places I've worked have been... Do you see yourself coming back to the States at any time? I would love to. I really would love to. I, I think I, I need to. I, I miss home. And um, as much as I love the Brits and, and being in England, um, I think I miss, uh, I miss New York. And um, home is where the heart is. And mm-hmm. I grew up here and... I love the, the vibe of New York City, and so I'd love to be part of it again. Well, we would love to have you back. Okay. Thank so you. I'm going to have to bring the interview to a close, but uh, hopefully the next time we, mm-hmm. we talk, you're going to be working over on this side of the pond. But anyway, thank you so much for thank joining you. us today. And uh, this is Dorothy Can Hamilton, and I want to have a shout out to my producer, Jack Imsley, and my assistant producers, uh, Heidi Tickle and Joe Sevier. And a special thanks to Judy Jew, our guest today um, on Chef Story. See you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.